we will be continuing our study in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible handy, open it up to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. If you already printed off the message guide, you'll find the verses are printed there. Uh, but we hope you uh, enjoy this week's sermon. It's called Left for Dead, and another ominous kind of title this week. Uh, and I hope you really uh, kind of just get the the power of this passage. There's there's uh, some really good stuff happening here. There's also some really important stuff happening here. So I hope you enjoy Left for dead. Gina, would you open us up in a word of prayer? Lord, we worship you. We praise you. We honor your name, God. We lift you up on high. Lord, we ask and invite the Holy Spirit to come and to minister to our hearts, God. And God, illuminate the truth of your word and let us be changed, God, by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So for those of you who have been around for a little while, you know that I like um, to tell stories. And we're, we're going to listen to a story first, though, that I think will set the tone for the evening. So um, please listen to the, this story about a, a really interesting man. 81-year-old Andy Nelson was never one to sit around. At 16 and a half, he forged his mother's signature and joined the U.S. Navy to fight in World War II. When normal sailors' duties didn't suit him, he joined the elite force called Frogmen, forerunners to today's Navy SEALs. He had to be a good swimmer, which I was. He had to be lean and mean, which I was. And stupid, which I was. So it all helped me. He proudly displays his old uniform, decorated with the bronze star for valor, and a purple heart he earned in Okinawa from a grenade wound. For years, he's volunteered on the USS Yorktown, now a museum docked in Charleston. Even with type 2 diabetes, he managed to walk nearly every inch of the ship, telling her story and talk about his own part in our country's wars. Andy never thought twice about climbing up and down the hundreds of steps on this ship. But then he noticed he was slowing down. At first, he thought it was age. As it turns out, it was something much more serious. I noticed my toes were starting to get discolored. Uh, I couldn't feel things. I would stick something in and just jab my foot. I couldn't feel anything too much. And I didn't think too much about it until it started going up my leg. And I started getting really black toes. Being the tough guy that he is, Andy ignored his symptoms. He didn't even mention them to his wife, Phyllis, who's a retired nurse. He never complained. He never said anything uh, until one evening he was sitting at the chair and he took his socks off. And uh, I just happened to glance down for some reason and I, I see his feet. Phyllis took Andy to the emergency room. The doctors there sent him immediately to vascular surgeon Dr. Edward Morrison. What he saw was not promising. Andy had virtually no circulation to his feet, and gangrene had set in. He explained to me that three arteries in each leg supply blood to the lower legs and feet. In Andy's case, all of them were totally blocked. Not a wide open artery with blood flowing in it with a big open lumen. This is normal. Normal artery. He is totally polluted. Totally clued from here down. Right and left legs. For an active man like Andy, the doctor's final analysis was devastating. What did Dr. Morrison tell you? 
Well, he said, I hate to tell you that, but there's no easy cure. It's double amputation. How did you react to that? Very bad. I'm not getting hit with a hand grenade again. And um, the worst thing in the world would be then an old parasite just relying, relying on someone else, everybody else to help you. Andy and Phyllis tried to imagine the life that lay ahead of them. I just said, Lord, you know, uh, you know that for better, for worse, for sickness and in health, to death do your part, you just, I know you'll give me the strength to, to do whatever I have to do. And I felt the same way. I, I just felt, God, give me the strength to go through this. Get me through it because I, I, you have everything else. I have no reason to doubt that you won't walk with me. While they and hundreds of friends and family members prayed for Andy, Phyllis says God gave her a word of knowledge. I knew that I knew that I knew that his legs weren't going to be amputated. And I told a friend of mine, I said, you know, there's something that I just feel a total peace about this. Phyllis began to notice some changes. I started seeing some color and some less of the black. Every one of his toes were totally black and what dr morrison says was in the stage of gangrene and i saw them clearing up at the next office visit there were signs of circulation and feeling returned to andy's feet they stuck the needles in the bottom of my feet and i yelled i felt them i hadn't felt that the week before there was no black in his feet no black in his toes uh, circulation going they were warm when I got dressed and walked out of that place, I floated and I said, I, and I, I, my mouth was hurting. I was smiling so much and laughing and waving to everybody. Oh, it was a God, it was a great feeling. Dr. Morrison says there's only one explanation. It was a miracle. Humanity did not heal us from. I can tell you that. Technology, technology failed us, man. Andy regained full use of his legs. He exercises regularly, and he's back to telling more stories to visitors to the Yorktown. Now he and Phyllis both have a story to tell. I want to tell people the story about God's glory. God gets all the glory. We do nothing, and he does love us so much that he even he went to the cross. It was such a gift to get back. And suddenly I'm walking on my own two feet again. And every morning since then, it's been over a year, every morning when I get up in the morning, the first thing I look down and say, thank you, God, thank you so much. You know, um, before I even go any further, I, I just feel like there are, there are people in our, in our church family right now who need healing. So uh, please uh, join me right now in praying. Um, Heavenly Father, we, we lift up. Francis and Regina and all of their families, all of their friends, the people that we know, the people that we love, um, Donna, that, that, have, um, that have COVID, that have other illnesses, Lord, we want them healed the way you healed this man. We want them completely well. Lord, you are the great healer. You created their bodies. You can mend their bodies. And we believe that you can and you will. And so we just we turn it over into your hands, Heavenly Father. We give you their, we give you their burdens. We give you their, literally their health, Lord. And we ask you just to make them perfect. In the name of your son, Jesus, may he get all the glory. Amen. All right. So I would like you to give me just a little bit of literary license this evening. Very little. Mostly I'm going to um, 
really just recall this story that we're going to be looking at in Acts chapter uh, 14. But I want to add a little bit of context to it. Uh, I want to maybe tell it in a way you haven't thought about it before. Uh, so, so just try to put yourself uh, with Paul and Barnabas as we as we talk about Acts chapter 14 this evening. You know, Paul is a, a middle-aged single man, and he never did marry. Uh, and God created him of average height and average build. But while he is unimpressive physically, his power is evident when he opens his mouth and speaks. His serious nature gives him air authority that few notice until they encounter him in a conversation. Barnabas is about the same age as Paul, but he is always quick to smile, and his countenance just seems to light up a room anytime he is there. Today, both men wear simple knee-length brown tunics, leather sandals, and, and carry walking sticks. They're leaving Iconium now that they found out that the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles have been plotting to stone them both to death. So it is time to move on. You know, sometimes it's hard to believe that nearly two decades have passed since the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And yet so much enmity still exists between those who believe and those who choose not to. Both Paul and Barnabas remember when John the Apostle told them what Jesus said. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Ironically, that gives them both comfort, knowing that they're sharing in Jesus' suffering. So they set off on the 18-mile walk, heading south southwest to Lystra. At 4,600 feet above sea level, the air is thin here. The land is broad and flat with many lowlands and plateaus. It's almost as if God used his hand to brush the land flat in one area, then push down harder in others, creating depressions and even steps in the landscape. The lower the land, the richer and darker the soil is here. And all of this is surrounded by mountains whose towering heights throw shadows across this uniquely leveled landscape. Thankfully, they'll be staying in the valley today and, and they will not have to cross those highlands. Looking in all directions, God's creation is truly evident in the beauty of this place. And the sun, the sun is particularly intense here, which makes certain crops thrive and others wither. You know, if one could ever harness the heat of the sun, this would surely be the place to do it. Because of that heat, both men have worn lightweight linen tunics today. If they were rich, they would wear silk in this weather. But earthly wealth has no value to either of these men other than to bless the poor and the needy. 
As they walked, Paul and Barnabas discussed their plans for once they arrive in Lystra. Lystra has become an important city in the region because it has been made a Roman colonia by Augustus. The people of Lystra are very diverse. On the one hand, there is the local aristocracy of Roman soldiers who form the garrison of the colonia. The locals avoid them as much as possible, more out of fear than respect. There are also many educated Greeks in the region. They love to hear themselves talk and they gather frequently to do just that. To them, talking seems far more important than actually doing anything. But the largest group of people living here are the local Lyconians. They're less educated and more primitive of mind. Pagans, really, who have blended their own mythology with that of the Greeks. They st still speak their native language for the most part, although they often know some Greek or Latin as both languages are common in this region. And of course, there are Jews in Lystra. Both men pray that the descendants of Abraham will respond more favorably than those in Iconian did. Because the terrain is relatively flat and because they encounter few on the road, they make good time and arrive in a single day's walk. Not long after they arrive, they encounter a man who warrants their attention. Everyone else in town ignores this man because he is lame. But to Paul and Barnabas, he is just the man they're looking for. This man has been lame from birth and has never felt the ground beneath his feet. He's never walked. He's never run. He's certainly never jumped or felt the wind in his hair, except for the breezes that blow across this valley. While Paul and Barnabas are aware of his presence, they do not yet approach him. Instead, they simply speak to one another in loud voices about the good news of Jesus and his power to change the lives of those who follow him. Paul, now hearing from the Holy Spirit, listens intently to God, knowing now that this man believes what he was hearing about Jesus and has the faith to be healed, Paul turns and looks at him for the first time. As the lame man's eyes meet Paul's eyes, the commanding voice of Paul sounds out, stand up on your feet. And as quickly as Paul speaks, the man jumps up and is on his feet, feeling the dirt under his toes. He begins to walk for the first time. He's speechless. It's a miracle. Soon the people around them see what is happening. Isn't this the man who's been lame since birth? What is going on? Soon the whole town is abuzz with the news. Two men have come to town and healed a lame man completely. But the locals, giving credit to their own pagan gods, begin to shout out in their own language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. While the educated Greeks in the, in the crowd turned up their noses at the word of the Lyconians because they believe the locals know nothing of the true nature of Hermes or Zeus, they're nonetheless fascinated by what is taking place. 
the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brings bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd want to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Paul and Barnabas hear of this, they tear their clothes and rush out into the the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Paul and Barnabas continue to plead with the men and women around them. But these people are so whipped up that they continue to spread the word of what happened and they keep giving credit to their own gods. They want to give sacrifices to their lifeless idols. All of this continues for so long that it's given time for Jews to come all the way from Antioch and Iconium. You see, this was the biggest news to ever hit a town like Lystra, and the crowds are still gathered, but the Jews have a plan. They infiltrate the crowd, and one by one, they spread lies about Paul and Barnabas. And one after another, the people of Lystra turn from wanting to praise Paul and Barnabas to wanting to kill them. Suddenly, Paul is surrounded by men with stones in their hands. But as quickly as Paul realized their intent, the stones are in the air, striking him from head to toe. Paul falls to the ground, but the stones don't stop. They continue to hit him like rain falling on the earth. Soon, Paul is still lifeless. The townspeople grab him now and drag him through the streets to the city gate. Outside the gate, they drop him in a heap and leave him for dead. The crowd is gone now, and Paul's lifeless body just lays in the dust. And a new crowd gathers around Paul. But this time, it's the disciples of Jesus. Tears in their eyes and lips quivering, they surround him completely. But before they can fully mourn his loss, they are shocked to see Paul sit up. He's alive, and and now he is on his feet. Praise God, Paul is alive. As they rejoice, Paul gathers them together, and to their surprise, he heads back to the city. No, Paul, don't go back. Don't worry, my brothers, it's time to move on. Tomorrow, Barnabas and I will be leaving for Derby. But now let me spend one more night with you so you can send us off properly. And with that, they re-enter the city gate. All right, let's see what God wants to tell us in this story today. The first thing I see is that faith makes a difference. You know, it makes a difference for the one healing, and in this case, for the one being healed. There's lots of scripture on this topic, 
James 1, 6 through 8 says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. You know, this is an interesting topic, faith. It's certainly a, uh, a contentious one from time to time. In the passage I just read in James, God makes it clear that faith is a necessary component for the people doing the praying in terms of having their prayers answered. And there are several other passages that tell us the same thing. The interesting thing about our story today is that in this case, the person being prayed for also had faith. And God's timing to answer Paul's prayer hinged on the lame man's faith, not Paul's alone. You know, there are other passages of scripture where God does miraculous things and those miracles cause an unbeliever to believe. Ultimately, what we need to know is that our faith is important and God's will is also important. He decides the results. We just need to follow him in obedience. So here's my first question for the night for you to consider. Do you believe that when you pray that God will respond? Do you believe that when you pray that God will respond? All right, the second thing I notice here is how the devil works to destroy those who follow Jesus. And because of this, I want to cover a few things that we need to remember about Satan. The first one is that the devil is real. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't know if you did this, but when I was young, I used to watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. It was the it was the wildlife show that was on TV back when there were three or four stations. And I remember when they would have the lions on and, and they would circle the pack of animals and they would cut one of the wildebeests or whatever they were trying to hunt the gazelles off from the pack. And then they would kill that animal and devour it. And this is such a powerful analogy. You see that the devil himself is not a concept or an analogy to keep you on the straight and narrow. Lucifer is a real being, a fallen angel. And the leader of a group of fallen angels we call demons. This is not a story. It's not make-believe. These are real these are real beings, and they are powerful, and they are wicked, and their goal is to steal your soul, kill you, and destroy everything good in your life. The truth is that without God's protection, you'd be dead already. So the next question I want you to consider is, do you believe that Satan is real? Do you believe that the devil, Lucifer, so called Satan is real. All right, the next thing I want to cover is that the devil's deception is real. 
Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, tell us. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient servant, serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. You know, man does play a role in sin. In our created state, we want to decide what we do with our lives. We want to be our own boss and we don't want to submit to God. But we want these things because Satan tempts us to want these things. Go all the way back to the garden. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve and reread Genesis and you will find that it was Satan that kicked off the temptation that Eve and Adam eventually succumbed to. And once that darkness is in us, we pick up the ball and run with it ourselves. Oftentimes the devil doesn't need to continue to tempt us, especially when we're unsaved. He can simply rely on us to, to run with the ball for him. You know, the Bible is really clear that only through the renewing of your mind that comes from following Jesus can we resist Satan's temptation. The unsaved have no chance. This is really, really important. We need to remember that the unsaved have no chance. So when people who aren't yet saved are doing things that are against the Bible, we should not be surprised. And we should not hate them. We should not even be angry with them. Instead, we should pray for them and love them because the truth is there is no possibility that they can resist Satan without God in their lives. It's not possible. Having said that, many times we who are saved choose to ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit when, we, when he tells us something that we believe. And, and, and that something we believe is not of God, but it is of Satan. You see, the, the, the temptations you have that are against God's word, they're from Satan. So this is my next question for you to consider. What are you believing that is of the devil and not of God? Is there something in your life that has a hold on you? You really believe it, but it goes against what the Bible says. What are you believing that is of the devil and not of God? All right. The next thing that I want want to talk about is that the devil is responsible for much of the evil in the world. Ephesians 6, 11 through 13 says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. You know, just 
like we just talked about, Satan compels us to follow him. You see, ultimately, that's what he really wants. He wants us to follow him and worship him. He doesn't want us to follow God. He doesn't want us to worship God. He wants us to follow him. And if we stay under the protective wings of our Lord, we're safe. And you have to believe in Jesus to even get under his wings, okay? But if we stay under his protection, we are safe. But if we choose to walk in disobedience, even as believers, we make ourselves vulnerable to attack. You know, here in, here in Texas, we have, we have some interesting weather. Um, and oftentimes it will rain about 10 days worth of rain in about 37 seconds. And we have these hailstorms uh, that, quite frankly, are rather surreal at times. Um, I, we have already had several vehicles that were badly damaged by hail. And when a hailstorm comes here, we know to stay under shelter. Right. If you're if you're trapped outside and you're underneath the patio, in fact, if you want to have fun during a hailstorm, just go by the Walmart and see all the people huddled waiting for the hail to pass before they go out to their cars. And our relationship with God is much the same. As long as we stay under cover of his protection, we're safe. But he doesn't make us stay there. We can choose to sin. We can choose to go our own way and walk out from underneath his protective covering. And if we do, we make ourselves vulnerable to attack. Now, it won't cost you your salvation, but it certainly can hurt. So here's the next question I want you to think about. I just talked about Ephesians chapter 6 and putting on the full armor of God. When was the last time you prayed on or put on the armor of God? If you've been around church a lot over your life, you've probably heard those verses. You may have even prayed them for yourself. But when was the last time you put on the armor of God? You know, a soldier wouldn't even consider going into battle without his armor on. And the truth is we walk into battle every single day. And if you're not sure what this concept is, if the armor of God doesn't ring a bell with you, we're going to discuss it a little more later, and you're, you'll find the full explanation in Ephesians chapter 6. All right, one more concept here about the devil that I want to talk about, and that is that the devil's manipulation is powerful, and only those indwelled by God can resist it. John chapter 8, verses 42 through 44 says... Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John, writing in 1 John 3, 8, says the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. If you have put your faith in God, then you have the ability to resist Satan. The Bible gives us the playbook to follow so that we will be protected from the devil and we play a role in that protection, just like I was talking about. It is up to us to be obedient to Jesus, and it is up to us to forgive others and repent when we sin, etc. Which leads me to my next question for you to consider. When was the last time you intentionally, with faith, resisted the devil? When was the last time you intentionally, with faith, resisted the devil? All right, two more concepts I think are important. First of all, God is more powerful than Satan. 1 John 4, 4 through 6 says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. If you are separated from God, if you don't yet know Jesus, you should be terrified of Satan and his demons. In fact, if you could see what is around you, if you could see what's happening in the spiritual realms around us, you would be very afraid and you should be afraid. But if you are a child of God, walking in obedience, you should be courageous because it is not you that has to fight Satan. God fights for you. The last concept tonight is that we actually have power over Satan. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, I hope as you've heard these words tonight, I have driven point, uh, driven home the point that the devil is by far stronger than any human on earth outside of God. Okay, without, without Jesus in our lives, none of us have a chance against Lucifer. He could strike you down in a moment. And even the least of the demons that follow him are far more important than the created being that you are. But I also hope that I've made it clear that we no longer stand alone when we follow Jesus. It's not up to us. We no longer need to rely on our own strength. We are in the care of the God that breathes out stars. And not only, not only do you have his protection, but he's actually given you his power. He's actually transferred that power to you because he lives in you. 
So you see, the one who created everything that is, including the angels, protects us from all evil when we choose his protection. But I want you to listen to that last verse one more time. James 4, 7. Because it starts out by saying, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't say just resist the devil. It says submit yourselves. Don't miss the submit part. You see, we play a role in our own protection. And the role that we play is simple obedience. So these are my last questions for you to consider. What part of your life have you not fully submitted to God? And why not? What part of your life have you not fully submitted to God? And why not? Let's pray about that. Father, in Ephesians 6, your word says to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Lord, your truth is the only truth. Every other philosophy is nonsense and without life. Let us cling to the life that is in Jesus. Your word says to live with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Lord, you have made us into a new creation. You have moved us from death to life and from enemies of God to priests. Let us be mindful of your new life that we have in you, in your son, Jesus. Let us also remember that it was the sacrifice of your precious son on the cross that cleanses us and makes us righteous in your eyes. Nothing we have done, Lord, but what he has done. Your word says that our feet need to be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Lord, you tell us that blessed is he who brings good news. Let us be quick to share Jesus with everyone we meet. Your word also says that in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Lord, those are those temptations, those flaming arrows. Let us grow in faith and in strength, and let us be quick to remember who you are when the devil tempts us to do evil. Your word continues and says to put on the helmet of salvation. Lord, let our minds be steadfast in knowing that your salvation is all that matters and that our time here is fleeting. Let us focus on what's truly important, bringing glory to you and advancing your kingdom. Your word says to wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, let us remember that the only weapon we have to fight the enemy with is your word, the Bible. And we can't fight with your word if we don't know the word, Lord. Let us spend time with your word. Let us ingest it. Let it be part of our DNA. Let it be part of who we are. 
And your word also says to, to pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Lord, you tell us to be alert because the devil is out there prowling like a lion. Mm -hmm. Lord, be with us. All of us who are part of your blessed family, empower us and protect us and encourage us to follow you always. Amen. Amen. So what? Now what? What has God been telling you for the last half hour? Is it time to start seeing the enemy perhaps for who he really is, not just some crazy caricature that you've seen on TV, but he really is out there and he really wants to destroy you? Or is it time to start resisting him and standing firm in your faith in the one who's already beaten the grave? Or is it time to take shelter for the first time and submit your life to Jesus? Because he is your only hope. He is your only salvation. Just as today, I saw an article uh, on the internet, and it was, the headline said that 60% of adults under 40 believe that Jesus is not the only source of salvation, that Muhammad and Buddha are equivalent to Jesus in this specific article. And the truth is, they're wrong. Those 60% of adults are wrong. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son, and Jesus is the Son of God. So will you make that choice right now? Will you follow Jesus? If it's time to join our family, I'm, I'm going to ask you to stay on this Zoom tonight, and after we're finished, um, we will help you take that step of faith. When everyone else drops off, you stay on and we'll help you take that step of faith. You know, this week we, we saw what happened when non-believers start mixing Christianity with paganism and mythologies. Next week, we're going to learn what Paul says must happen before we enter the kingdom of God. So don't miss it. It's going to be good. We love you. Thank you for being uh, part of our Steeplest Church family, and we'll see you next week.